Hello and welcome to episode 220 of the Rilo and Slappy show. This episode will be released on, sorry, October 12th, 2020, because today is the uh, the 11th. We're recording this a day early. Uh, but I'm Rollo McFlugel and with me, as always, is my co-host Slappy Jones. Show notes page for this episode will be McFlugel.com where uh, slash 220 where you can find our sponsor, libertymugs.com. Check out some awesome libertarian and Bitcoin-themed mugs, as well as checking out our guest, a repeat guest, who Slappy will introduce to us now. Yeah, our guest is a repeat guest. Last time he was on the show was back, way back in January 2019 for episode 126. But welcome back to the show, Colin, also known as uh, a heavily armed clown. Um, Last time we were talking a little bit about Bitcoin, uh, if I know these two, like I think I do, we'll probably talk about it again today, but that's not the topic of today's discussion. We're going to talk about governments weaponizing COVID. So welcome back to the show, Colin. Hey, thanks, Slappy. Good to be back. Yeah. So what, I know you two, you two were going back in DMs about this. So, uh, kind of, what were you guys talking about? <laughs> Fill me in. Yeah, man. So recently I had something resurface on my Twitter feed and it was, if, if you guys recall, and I, and as far as you listeners go, I don't know how many of you are paying attention to this, but January, February timeframe, there was a very small group of people that even so much as had knew or cared about COVID-19, right? The, the group of people that are fairly pl- well plugged in on Twitter that were sort of like something weird is going on in China because we were seeing videos of people out on the street falling unconscious on the street who allegedly had contracted COVID uh, on the street. And like at that moment, this the moment they got it, they fell unconscious on the street. I remember a video of a Chinese woman who, who literally falls over on the street. And then they were welding apartment buildings shut in China. And at the time, the narrative was, oh, this is not coming to America. This is not a big deal. You people are freaking out over nothing. And I, I, we had no information. Like I, I remember being genuinely terrified about what was going to happen. I was buying up, you know, canned goods and MREs and, and ammunition and being like, what the fuck is about to happen? And then it came to America and America lost its ever loving mind and shut down its entire economy for like three months and forced everybody to stay home and airdropped a whole bunch of people, us dollars. And now we're here and not a lot of people died and it wasn't that big of a deal. In fact, it wasn't that much worse than a regular flu season. And yet we still have uh, political parties pushing this as like the go-to talking point in a debate over uh, political policy and it really kind of turned out to be like not much of anything, but the the epidemiologists and the politicians certainly didn't hesitate to seize the opportunity to tell us exactly how to live our lives. Yeah, it's uh, I remember some of those videos. I remember one that stuck out in my head because it ended up being a hoax or not a hoax, but just not not. Uh, a real video. It was a guy on a bus who was allegedly just like 
vomiting blood, like spraying blood out of his mouth all over the place and flipping out. People are like, this is a guy that got COVID. And then there were some other people kind of commenting like, no, this is an old video. And the guy slashed his own neck, slashed his own throat. And so he's bleeding out of his neck. And that's where the blood's spurting out from. It's, this is way before, you know, years before COVID. This is an old video. So, and so, you know, you see these videos on the internet. Anyone can post them. Anyone can say what they are, especially when it's coming from China and they're not speaking English. So you don't, as an American or someone else doesn't speak Chinese, you don't really know what's going on. So I remember from the beginning, I was very hesitant to believe anything that was coming out about COVID in China. I remember seeing the the doors getting welded shut. I remember hearing the, you know, people, you know, dropping, dropping on the ground when they got COVID and, and saying, oh, this is just like the most horrific disease in the world. I was just like, eh. one, I just, eh. just anyone can post any video and say it's anything. I mean, we, we've seen enough of that um, just for, for any, for anything that someone wants to, to try to lie about. And then the other thing, too, is it's like, well, is this just Chinese government propaganda that that they're sending out there? Um, You know, we're all we're all sitting here talking about how Fox News and CNN and MSNBC produce all sorts of nonsense. And they're basically, you know, producing this uh, news content at the permission and the uh, and the stamping uh, stamped approval of the state, the U.S federal government so why would i not think that any sort of chinese media would be but the same thing would be happening with the chinese government i didn't really think about what would be motivating china to you know to do that or anything but just kind of like eh i'm gonna wait a little bit before i really take a take a hardline stance on this but i remember as and i think we talked about this slap we might even said on the show uh but as it was COVID was starting to come to the U.S. and they're starting to talk about taking measures against it. Uh, I just remember that uh, Obama chief of staff, Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, his line, never let a crisis go to waste. And uh, whether or not, uh, you know, COVID's now it's coming up again. Uh, People are blaming China for it. And there's there's people coming out saying there's no way this could have not been developed in a lab um it's i've heard this idea from a lot of people that this is this is a weapon from china and uh you know we should be angry at the chinese for this so i think it's important that we discuss a few things first um the the first and i think most important is how bad the markets tanked following initially yeah yeah, initially following like we had we had the worst drawdowns in that in the equity markets in the history of the United States. Like we beat out the Great Depression, we beat out the dot com bubble. Everything just went nuts. I mean, it just yes. absolutely just fell into the sky overnight. Circuit breakers were flying. Yeah. No, it was crazy. And, and it was scary. And I, I, so I recorded a podcast with J.W. Weatherman in March and we were talking about COVID-19. And at the time, I was still very unsure about what it was that we were facing and what exactly was going to happen. And, and I credit J.W. because at the time he, 
he was very calm about this. He had felt like he had already kind of deduced that this really wasn't much worse than a, a regular strain of flu that we really didn't have anything to worry about. But however, this was prior to a lot of the um, centralized responses to the incident. Now, interestingly, uh, the narrative, at least among the laymen, has become that nobody, well, at the time, it was that nobody could have seen this coming. The, the economic downturn, the black swan, is what a lot of people were calling it. Funny enough, uh, 18 months prior to the, this massive economic downturn, I remember having a conversation with one of my coworkers, and I was showing him the bond yield curve and how it had just inverted. And I was saying, you know, by the Federal Reserve's own research, they've published studies on this. They say that when there is a bond yield curve inversion and it's, co and it's coupled with low unemployment, historically low unemployment, in fact, bond yield curves and bond yield curve inversions and low unemployment historically predict upcoming recessions. And I said, I remember this was like 18 months ago from like March. I remember saying, get out of equities get into sound stores of value because you don't know what's about to happen. And he told me I was nuts. He said, we're at the top of a bull market. How could you possibly want to get out of equities? You're out of your mind. Like ride this wave as long as you can and then get out when you start to see the warning says, I'm like, I'm telling you this bond yield curve inversion, the bond yield curve never lies. The 10 year minus the two year spread because I don't want to get too much into it. But uh, when, when the, 10 and two year yield inverts when the two year, year two year yield is worth more than the 10 year yield you know you have problems because investors who are actually paying attention uh, institutional investors they're they're pricing risk differently on a long term basis on the two year basis than they are the 10 year basis and when that inversion happens you know that a recession is coming and that's exactly what happened 18 months later However, it just so happened that the entire country and all of the politicians unilaterally raised their hands and said, we must shut down the entire economy. And everybody, the narrative was that this was COVID that caused this. This was the, not the government shutdowns, right? Not, not your governor telling you that you had to sit in your house and be afraid and run out of toilet paper and wipe your ass with uh, whatever you had the house, but it was COVID that caused this. It wasn't the economy. Our economy was great. It was COVID. We also just, and you're right about the um, the bond yields. We also had that repo market go crazy back in August last year. Do you remember that? Uh, I don't. <laughs> but I remember Bob Murphy did well. an episode on it. It's the overnight loans to, and the returns were so high. They were saying all these companies are over leveraged and have no capital. Well, it wasn't just that. So the, the overnight bond rate or the overnight lending rate spiked so high that it exceeded interest on excess reserves by the Federal Reserve. And people still weren't filling those gaps, right? So there was money to be made. And yet no one was stepping in with excess capital to fill that hole and, and make that money. Why? Right? That's what I was asking at the time. Like, what right. the hell is going on that people are not willing to 
make that money on uh, the overnight lending market, and they'd rather just make the the point zero five percent less or whatever it was on uh, interest on excess reserves with the Fed. And the answer was that there was no liquidity, and that was when the Fed started stepping in and providing overnight lending, which they never did before. As far as I know, I'm pretty I sure don't they did. think that ever happened yeah. before. Yeah, I mean those those spreads wouldn't lie. I mean, if there's, that's it, you have to ask those questions when when something looks like there's that something should be happening and it's not. You know, you got to dig in, and and it would make perfect sense if if there's a if there's what looks like to be like an easy opportunity to make money, and no one's doing it, then it's they can't probably there's there's something there's some sort of impediment that's in the way for them doing it. Um, you know, you just look at it in a micro level with, with your own, with yourself, um, <laughs> just even slappy said, we're going to talk about Bitcoin, but you know, you hear people talking about, well, oh, I, I don't have, I don't have the, uh, <laughs> the excess income to throw into Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree. It's gonna, it's gonna blow up and everything. I'm, I'm, I agree with your bullishness, but Hey, I don't have the money to do it. So that, I mean, it makes sense. Otherwise you would be, you know, people would be throwing money at it, at these things. Sure. I mean, if you're in the median income bracket and you have a car, two car payments and a house payment, childcare payments, uh, you know, you're, you're sending your kids to public school and, and paying for them to go do their sports teams and their drama clubs and all the stuff that they do. And, you know, you're trying to be a good American, put some of your money towards your retirement into your 401k. You don't have a whole lot of discretionary income left to throw at this speculative monetary asset, but by the way, I mean, COVID absolutely wrecked our economy. I mean, nobody could have seen that coming. That was the thing that I kept seeing people say on like Twitter was yeah. nobody could have predicted this. And it's crazy because I have tweets of me in like January, like 2019. I don't know, remember exactly when it was. It was whenever this, the repo markets first started melting down. And I was tweeting about bond yield curve inversions and I was like, it's going to get bad, you know, get out of equities because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and people, pe people still said years later, I mean, yeah, granted, I, I don't have that much influence, but you know, who was really on top of this was, uh, Eric Townsend. And I don't, I don't like the guy, frankly, because I think he's conceited douchebag, but he <laughs> knows an awful lot about markets and he knows an awful lot about finance. And he saw this coming from a mile away. He he was talking about oil potentially going negative in the futures market long before it ever happened. And, and I think people forget because these days we have a short attention span. Oil went negative mm -hmm. for a short amount of time. Yeah, that's wild. That's insane. It's it's just it's. I remember when it was happening, and and I just. I know I did, and I know other people had to be like, wait, stop. Explain this like I'm five. How is this? <laughs> what is going on here? But, it, you know, it it happened. It did. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, and, and the oil market, because I used to be in, in refining. Um, but good and, job getting out of that market, by the way. Well, it wasn't by choice. It was like perfect, though. It was like right at the yeah. right time. But it was in 2018. There was a, just like a massive overproduction, and everyone everyone in refining thought that 
you know, these, the high prices for, for, uh, you know, retail, we're going to, we're going to keep going and, and you're getting paid to store oil. And then the rug got pulled out from everybody and the consumers, like it was, it was a huge market crash in the oil industry in 20, I think it was like November of 2018. Um, and consumers didn't know it was happening. They just saw it as a, uh, oh, we got cheap, cheap gas prices because there's just this massive oversupply of uh, crude oil and, and production of that crude oil. It really was the oversupply of the production. Um, and, uh, you know, where I was working, they had to, they, they gave out retirement packages for, for all the boomers and everything and, and had some other places had, you know, layoffs and everything. We had to cut back, cut a lot of, you know, capital spending and everything. And it, and it really was, uh, I mean, it was a, it was kind of a classic, um, Austrian business cycle theory within this market. And I mean, it kind of corrected. I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't dug deep enough or even maybe have the ability to understand how that rippled through and, and went into what's going on here uh, to what we're talking about and how, you know, oil prices went negative. But I mean, these markets were kind of choppy even even before when, when you were oh, i was like i was right before when you were noticed it because this was no, i think it was november of 2018 this happened i remember we had we you know the the refinery manager brought us in a conference room and was, was explaining basically the the you know the basics of the market what was going hat what was happening almost showing like supply and demand curves and i'm sitting there being like like looking around, wanted to like nudge people like, yo, this is like what Mises and Rothbard talk about. No one, <laughs> of course, no one would care about that. But I mean, this stuff, uh, it's, it's, you just, you, if you just like pull these strings and go down these rabbit holes of these individual markets and you start to see, uh, this stuff, this stuff doesn't happen out of nowhere. Well, and what happened before that, you know, what I'm talking about that led up to all that. So the other thing that, you know, people will say is, well, the whole world is doing it. So do you, do you think the whole world is over leveraged? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Especially and, the, the first world economies. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, I, I think you're right. Um, do you think that, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you, if you want to go into that, but, but do you, how, how interconnected is the economy through the U S dollar or through the Euro or whatever? And why does that, like, why would this be a motivation to, to tank it? I mean, I, I don't know that it was, so this like, is the thing. Do you that, think it was orchestrated or do you think it just kind of happened and we're able to run with it? And now we have, look, we do have this disease. So, you know, they know they needed to, ta they knew the economy was crashing. Like, like yeah. you're saying, but this isn't some like secret, super secret thing. These are public numbers that people know about if you pay attention. Yeah. I, I, and that's a really good question because I don't think, you know, people have this idea that they choose when the market downturns happen. And I don't think that that's how it works because if you ever study Austrian business cycles, that's just not how it works, right? I mean, particularly in this time period that we have where the, you see this massive credit expansion, this massive monetary base expansion, 
it causes inflationary booms. And this is well-documented. Go back and read Rothbard's History of Money and Banking in the United States, and you will see that this is a common theme throughout every major financial crisis in the 19th century, all throughout the 1800s. Uh, the, the monetary crises were, ha- they, they were caused by the exact same thing. Increases in credit, increases in spending, increases in the monetary base, and then a snapback to reality and the government scrambling to try and stop the liquidation. Um, so like, I don't buy into this idea that people have that, oh, they caused this. They knew this was coming. I mean, yeah, they caused it, but you know, if it was up to them, they'd keep the party going forever. They don't want it to snap back to reality. Yeah. I'm trying to piece this question in my mind because I, I agree with you because it's, you know, you're, you're getting drunk on easy credit, easy money, and it's a party. And if, of course, no one wants it to end because once then you got to, you have to deal with the, uh, the hangover. Um, so once like with, with shutting down the economy and blaming COVID, was that, that was the reaction that was, everything was already crumbling and, uh, we need to, we need to give this a soft landing or could you try, did you say anything like making sense of that? I mean, I don't think it was that coordinated, right? I mean, look at the incentives, right? The incentives were uh, for all of these wannabe totalitarian rulers to say, oh, crap, things are happening and and the people need an answer, right? The people need me. You know, think about, you got to remember how uh, egocentric a lot of these politicians are. They're the types of people who think that they should be in charge of everything, right? I mean- and and then they see a crisis and they say, "Oh, I fit into this puzzle hole perfectly. Uh, clearly, I am needed to save the human race." Uh, and and I'm not, you know, let, like let's fast forward a little bit, right? Because we're in the present day, right? We're not still living in late or early 2020, late 2019. Like we know the after effects of COVID, and it wasn't as bad as we were sold, right? We were told that these models were predicting millions and millions of deaths, if not more, right? We were told this is the worst event since the Spanish flu. Like if people don't stay at home and and literally lock themselves in their house, 10% of the population will die or, or some absurd number based on what the models predict. None of that happened, right? And, and you've got these status bootlickers saying, well, right, it's because we locked it down. And yet here we are today, COVID's still a problem, apparently, because I have to wear a mask when I go to the grocery store. And yet uh, we eased up the lockdowns. The lockdowns didn't work, right? If you look at the actual evidence, if you look at the actual objective truth, and you don't listen to what CNN is telling you, you'll go and see that it wasn't that big of a deal, right? I mean, like a lot of old and sick people maybe died if they were unlucky enough to contract it and then they died on a ventilator in a hospital but generally speaking this year hasn't been that much of an anomaly uh, compared to years prior so it was it was sort of like a, a coincidence of circumstance where a lot of these people who are in positions of power were able to say this is it this is my time to save the human race and they have to do exactly what i say and they must stay at home yeah 
Yeah, and and you can, uh, you know, as a listener, you can look up the uh, the annual death rates, and there's not really that much difference between this year and previous years. I know Pennsylvania; they in June first they announced the uh, the estimates for 2020 for the deaths, and it was basically the same as 2018. So, what is that? <laughs> what does that tell you right there? And and also, just to you know, this might be going off off track a little bit, but even with that spike of deaths in New York, especially early on, one of the things that no one's asking is that. And you brought up ventilators. How how much of the treatment unnecessarily killed people in the beginning when they didn't know what was going on and they were overreacting with treatments and and apparently throwing people on ventilators really quickly and having all sorts of ventilator shortages. Now you don't hear about ventilators at all. I haven't heard some, anyone mention ventilators. And, you know, I remember when it was first going on, people were saying, hey, when someone goes on a ventilator, I mean, that's basically a good chance that that's it. Because your, you, you know, your lungs, your your muscles that help you breathe, they get used to getting the support of the ventilator, and they kind of start to have the atrophy that they can't do it on their own anymore. So, you know, I'm not trying to say that these people were intentionally killed. I just don't. I think that mis- they made mistakes with how they were treating them, and people unnecessarily died in the beginning, especially in like you look at a place like New York, and that's where you had these this massive amount of massive spikes and deaths and you know was 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 the panic associated with it and the and the hyper conservative nature of treatments what killed most of those people or at least caused that spike to have that that spike in deaths there because we haven't seen those deaths since then Are you well, going to jump I, I in, Slappy? No, I was just going to say, I remember back way, you know, in the, toward the beginning of this, there was one of these uh, medical residents up in New York who was, I guess, doing a Twitter video or Facebook or something. But say, she was saying how we're trying to get patients on ventilators as fast as possible for the safety of doctors, um, which is disgusting <laughs> to hear and crazy to hear. And of course... You know, this is at the time when everyone's freaking out, thinking this is just going to kill everyone. Um, and and then you were getting like the sneak peek inside the hospital where she's saying, we're putting everyone on ventilators as fast as possible for the safety of the doctors because we don't want the patients breathing on them. Um, from what I understand, going on a ventilator is is like not an easy decision to make. Like you, it's something like 50% or so. And I, I shouldn't throw out numbers because I don't know. Uh, you, I guess you could look it up, but don't come back from that typically because you're forcing air into the lungs instead of the lungs, drawing it in. And like Rallo said, there's some atrophy in the lungs if you're on it, especially for a long time, which some of these people are put on for a week or longer. Um, and that could be a really bad move. And on top of that, I don't know. Do you know, do you have any idea what the number of malpractice deaths are in a typical year? Um, no. I don't know the number. I did see, I saw a commercial recently from one of those attorneys. I guess he's suing someone for something, but he said 400,000 malpractice deaths per year in the United States, which would mean this is like, Rallo, there's a guy who, who used to go to that golf weekend we go to every year who, um, he had a gallstone or, or not a gall. He's something, something with his gallbladder went in for surgery and never came home because of they, they screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so just the idea that these doctors are saints, they're, they're nothing other than humans. I don't know why we have to take every word they all say, and there's always disagreeing doctors. Um, and I, I, I kind of rambled on. I forget what my original point was. I think it was more the ventilators. But that it's possible that that was a really bad move and a big mistake. And maybe because, maybe an honest mistake, maybe they didn't realize how serious or not so serious the disease is, and they, they were handling it with the tools they had the best way they could at the time. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to think doctors are purposely killing people, but it's okay to look back months later and say we were wrong. And it seems like nobody wants to do that. or very few people. That's a really good point. Which is why like the story keeps changing. It was flatten the curve, flatten the curve, because we know these people are going to die regardless, but we can't have the, uh, hospitals overwhelmed. And then it just suddenly switched overnight to cases where cases weren't even a thing. I mean, I don't remember. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I would assume most of you people have watched the presidential debate, the first presidential debate between Biden and Trump. But one of the main talking points that Biden's used was the 200,000 dead Americans, right? Dead from COVID-19, which me you know, the well-informed American listening to that was, I, I was sort of scoffing at that, right? Because 200,000 dead is, I mean, I don't want to sound insensitive, but that's not, that's not a big deal. When you look at the average annual death rates from things like chronic diseases and, and the types of people who were susceptible from dying from COVID in the first place, I mean, those numbers are, are pretty much general in terms of the types of people that die from things like flu, right? I mean, that that's respiratory illness causes all kinds of death in the people who are susceptible to those types of diseases on a normal yearly basis. And yet we're not talking about the fact that these governors and these mayors shut down entire cities, entire states to stop, to protect us from this, right? And like, to go back on what I was talking about earlier, um, how quickly we forget, right? I mean, the, the, like I said, the most well-informed of us were paying attention to this quote-unquote COVID pandemic, you know, back in January, back in February, before the mass uh, basis of the American public even even cared, much less had heard about it. And we're She's seeing these videos of people falling over in the streets in China, right? My question is who promulgated that information that people were falling over dead and vomiting blood, like Rallo said, in China? And they, it was so bad that the Chinese government was welding apartment buildings shut, in, like welding people inside the building for a month and then opening them up and seeing who was left. Uh, the that that sounds like something out of a movie that was not what we experienced here and that's obviously not a symptom of covid no so right yeah it's people yeah people have kind of gaslighted themselves over and over and over again over over all this yeah i never even (laughs) i never pieced all that together it's like all these the, the stuff coming out of china allegedly coming out of china about what was going on with covid is uh it's just utter, utter and complete nonsense. 
And another thing that always makes me scratch my head is you can go back to October of 2019, where the World Health Organization explicitly did not recommend public usage of masks or lockdowns in a re with, with uh, you know, an outbreak of a, of a respiratory disease. I mean, you can go look that up. They explicitly said it doesn't do anything. And then the science just changed. Like, well, you know, I use that in quotes, but why? How? What experiments did they do? Where did, where did this change come from? If I'm supposed to follow the science, why did it just 180 degree change and no one says anything? It doesn't make sense. Like if a paper was published in like January where they're like, no, we were wrong before. Masks actually do work. And next time we have an outbreak, we'll use them. And then a month later, there was an outbreak. I mean, at least there's an explanation. Well, it's like Colin said earlier, it's driven by politicians. And and to your point too, Colin, you said it's 200,000 people died. Also, as a little aside, they were they were calling for like 10 million people or something in the United States were going to die. So, you know. Shouldn't this be a Trump and, victory? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And they say that Trump's responsible for those 200,000 deaths. So, all right, he had a 90, 98% uh, improvement on what they were saying was inevitable. But- this whole thing in the beginning, it's like it's everything we do, it's it's worth it if we save one life. We're not going to let one person die from COVID, which is just the most absurd thing in the world. That. Anyone who says that doesn't even believe it because they all get in their car and go drive. Right. But it's just such an absurd metric to have. And it, and it goes to show that these people don't live in the reality of how to manage risk or how to manage anything. Um, like... It's 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 tough because it's with human lives and it and it feels dirty and and nasty to be able to, to say something like, well, yeah, I mean, two hundred thousand people dying over this might not be an actionable thing, but you know, you got to look at the limited resources we have, the limited knowledge that we have, and and put it put together a histogram and see what's on the left side of that histogram with with the most number of deaths going on, and that's if you're going to focus on something, that's what you focus on. Not the thing, not one of the the things on the tail, all the way on the on the right side of that histogram. Where it's just like, it's just it shows just a complete lack of statistical analysis, risk management. The whole not everything was just that was one of the heuristics I was using in the beginning too. Was I? I they're showing these numbers, they're predicting the number of deaths, and it was down to like the one, like they were saying, oh, next month we predict. Uh, 38,392 deaths. I'm picking a number off the top of my head. But it was down to the one. They were estimating down to the one, the single digits. And it's like, that's not how you do statistics. And so that right there just shows that you, whoever came up with that number has no idea what they're talking about. They got to be in the thousands or tens of thousands in their estimate. They're going to, they should be saying, you know, 30, 30 to 40,000 people are going to die if, if they were, you know, doing statistics legitimately. It's a, so it's a, I can tell you this, it is a sales technique when you're negotiating, if you're like, uh, you know, $10,421 is the lowest I can go. Like it'll, it'll be like you did the math and calculated it. And that's like, you're squeezing every penny out. So that wouldn't shock me if it was just some sales guy putting a number out. Sure. Well, no, I, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me either, but it just goes to show what they were doing. And as far as I know, there haven't been any governments. I mean, yeah, granted the American public has a short attention span, right? Right now we're distracted about talking about how uh, the 
either Biden or Trump's going to pack the Supreme Court. I'm not sure which. Apparently both. Uh, they're both trying to pack the Supreme Court. We are way too busy talking about that to remember what happened three months ago uh, and, and hold the governors and the mayors accountable for destroying local and state economies, right? On, uh, during a period of time, which I believe uh, was already forecasting uh, economic downturn, We're, how quickly we forget uh, that these things are happening and, and the narrative is changing, how quickly the narrative changes. And I have it on good authority, you know, that, that military leaders are, are saying to their, saying to the, the, you know, the people that they're in charge of, like, you know, if, if you hate having to wear a mask in the grocery store, if you hate not being able to go out to bars on the weekend, blame China, ah. blame China for sending this awful, terrible disease that that's the thing that's the thing that people you know that whenever you know you'll know somebody's pushing the narrative whenever you hear them say that covid caused this right because covid turned out to not be that bad yeah they don't mention that it wasn't the covid that caused this it was the response to covid and nobody i the only government that i've heard that was quick to try to say what we did was wrong. We made a mistake. I know the Florida gov- Florida state government came out and said that the lockdowns were a mistake and they'll never do it again. As far as I know, that's the only state government in the entire U.S. that, that has come out and admit that, that we made a mistake. What we did was wrong. There might be more. I'm not aware <laughs> of any. I, I know Sweden said they made a mistake, but that's not a state government. Or U.S. state government, anyway. Yeah, it's... And just with funny things with governments. Do you remember early on um, in Italy, because everyone was worried about it being a Chinese virus and coming from Chinese people, that they instituted the... uh, Or they, they suggested and promoted hug a Chinese person? <laughs> when because COVID of, was uh, Donald going Trump. around, yeah, because Trump, uh, was travel. yeah, because because Trump said something about it coming from China and everything. It's like, oh, well, we're we, we're not racist, so yeah, go out and hug a Chinese person. And now all these Italy, especially, had some nasty uh, lockdown policies, and you know, not allowing you to be close to each other. It's just like the irony of it is just is just absurd. Well, I feel like I need to clarify, like I'm not sitting here trying to say that that Donald Trump is the savior, right? Right. Like not by any means, um, because I, I say all the time, like you pick between the party that wants to deficit spend five trillion versus the party that wants to deficit spend four trillion. Uh, but it, it was a talking point in the debates, again, that, that Donald Trump wanted to shut down the borders long before the any other administration was willing to admit that it was quote unquote a problem right and and these 200,000 deaths are on your hands well the current administration the, the Trump administration was pretty much ahead of the ball game in, in shutting things down and i'm not here to say that i agree with that decision because we're actually you know, saying we disagree with the shutdowns. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. However, they were the first ones to take action. And now yeah. you have these late to the game, you know, progressives saying, oh, you, you didn't do enough when at the time uh, they were calling it racist. Right. Also, also, we, you have to look at like what what could have also been motivating Trump to want to 
you know, shut down trade with China. He was already trying to instigate trade wars with them and talking about how unfair the trade policies were. And, and he wanted to be aggressive with, with that, that stuff anyway. Yeah. So it's it's a perfect opportunity for him to say, ah, here's this COVID thing. We have to, you know, got to stop trading with China. You're, we're doing every, you know, weird thing that's in his head uh, about that. And, and also to your point, uh, about, um, oh, blame China, blame China, blame China. Um, I think it's pretty much accepted that the virus did come out of China. Like it was in the beginning, it was Wuhan. They tried to blame that wet market, but it did come from like some lab somewhere. And, um, I don't necessarily think that means that it was intentional. I, you know, if you work in, you know, anything that in an industry that requires, you know, safety protocols and doing things the right way, you know, people, people mess up, people don't follow protocols. Um, I've been in, in involved in industrial accidents, uh, before. And when you see how these things break down, uh, it's perfectly reasonable, uh, and, and a fine find use of Occam's razor to just say, yeah, like a, a bunch of layers of protection failed due to people probably making a series of dumb decisions, just like every other disaster or accident that happens, all the planets align with, with someone not catching a mistake. And so this thing comes out. Um, and this is, maybe this is kind of like the theme we're talking about. Okay. But even, even if China did, <laughs> If, if you want to say it was a stupid accident and, and the stupid Chinese didn't didn't protect this nasty virus or you're saying that it's that it is an intentional weapon from China, the disease isn't that bad. And so if you want to talk about someone weaponizing this disease, blame your own government that if they just used their heads and said, hey, well, you know, fight this off like we do any other sort of new strain of a, of a flu virus or, or respiratory virus that comes through just like what happened in 2009 with, uh, H1N1, you know, that on the upper, upper, uh, estimates of infections around the world, that was a billion people and a whole lot of people died from that, but no one in the U S really took any actionable steps on it. If if you're going to talk about, a, a you know, a government making it a weapon and causing problems, I mean, it, it would be like it would be like someone putting a loaded gun in front of you, and you you taking it and shooting yourself in the leg and saying, "How dare you to cause me to get shot in the leg?" Well, you're the one that picked up the gun and pulled the trigger, pointing at your leg. It's it's your fault. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of pathetic that this attempt at quote-unquote biological warfare was less effective. Well, maybe it was extremely effective if the goal was to uh, coordinate a... And and this is a good question, right? The CDC and the WHO, who flipped their narrative so fast from uh, lockdowns aren't necessary, masks don't work, to, um, you know, (laughs) I don't know if you guys saw the video that's floating around Twitter right now, the kids dancing at the senior prom back-to-back. Oh God, it's disgusting. It, it I won't feel bad. My stomach. I won't feel bad about the dumb stuff I did in high school anymore after watching that. Right. Because nothing I did compares to that. But if the goal 
you know, let, let's just pretend for a second that this was a Chinese state coordinated attempt to destabilize the United States. If the goal was to um, undermine, manipulate, whatever the the centralized response, right? The, via via the CDC, via the WHO, uh, via whatever scientific networks exist that respond that that advise, right? Like the Fauci's of the world, right? Who who flip their narratives constantly? It seems, and I actually just saw he was nominated as like some some academic award person of the year. Uh, for, for his his uh, <laughs> hilariously bad, embarrassing responses to the COVID, which which seemingly changed overnight, right? If if the Chinese government, if this was a bioweapon, right, and it wasn't necessarily intended to kill as many people as possible, it was designed to uh, evoke an an overreaction. Well, we're still blaming the wrong things if we're blaming them, right? Because it was our institutions that we're weak enough, that hold enough power to disrupt our everyday lives and our, and our economic well-being uh, to shut down entire economies over what's really seeming to be not much worse than a regular flu. Yeah. I mean, if this was actually a weapon from China, it just goes to show that uh, it's just the United States government and all these other world governments are just totally in the pocket of the Chinese. I mean, they just it's kind of embarrassing. Totally, yeah. It's yeah, less just, effective than like the smallpox blankets. I mean. Right. They're just utterly manipulated. They said, dance, monkey, dance, and we danced. It's which, it's unbelievable. No, I did a podcast with Alex Svetsky in like June or July, and we were talking about this exact thing. We were like, you know, none of us really have a problem with people wearing masks per se, or, or people wanting to stay at home, right? Let the individual decide. Like if, if they think that they're at risk, if, if they don't want to expose their family, you know, for, for various circumstances to whatever potential diseases are out there, well then let them stay at home. Um, you know, maybe get, let the government give a little bit of lenience into people who, who don't want to come into work because they're afraid of, of the disease. And, you know, I'm, I'm not here to advocate for centralized responses to crises, but, uh, you know, if people decide I, I can't go into stores without wearing a mask or I can't go into work because uh, my, my grandmother who lives at home, you know, might contract this disease and then she'll die. Well, maybe, maybe have a little bit of sympathy in your heart to give that person a little bit of leniency and say, you know what, uh, go ahead and take a month or two of, of convalescent leave, uh, given the circumstances. But to, to say, to be an epidemiologist or to be a governor and say, you must stay at home, you must wear a mask. Uh, it, it's so out of touch with reality. And it's reminiscent of so many of the decisions that politicians have made throughout United States history to suspend liberty uh, in in the effort to promote either safety or order, uh, rarely to the long-term benefit of the American people. Like, here's the other thing I, I just... Why do you have the expectation of safety when you leave your home? Like, you never do. We have the flu every year. The flu certainly kills more children than this does. We never have this kind of response. We never have people 
upset that you're not wearing, calling you selfish for not wearing a mask. You know, maybe you're the selfish one for telling everyone else to, to, you know, wear a mask because you're scared. Like you got to deal with it. I, there's people that I know who don't drive their car on the highway because they're scared of it. It would be absurd if they were to tell everyone else not to drive their car on the highway. Like you can look at the science, but you can't assign my, my risk tolerance. Yeah. Everyone's got to put on their big boy pants and make decisions to manage their own risk. Like when you cross a street, I don't know about you. The light turns green. I still look to make sure the cars are stopping. Like (laughs) that's part of it. You know? Yeah. If the car hit me, that car would be bad or wrong or whatever, but like you got to protect yourself. And if you're uncomfortable with this, even though now we have several months of data and, and experience and you're still this scared of it, like that's not my problem anymore. I understand at first when we didn't know and, and people were freaking out and the news was freaking everyone out. And like, I get why people were upset at first, but now like, you know, what month we're in October, this started back in March in this country. Like you, you got to grow up at some point. We got to go on. We got to live. And I'm sorry if you get sick. It's not my, it's not my fault. I also don't understand how healthy people spread a virus. Like, why do healthy people need to wear a mask? But, well, do, do either of you watch Futurama at all? I watched it when I was in college. Yeah, back in the day. So there was an episode where, and this was, I saw this a few months ago, but it was during the middle of the lockdowns and everything when they were really heating up. There was an episode where Fry accidentally brought, uh, like, was sneezing, and everyone's like, What's, oh, what's yeah. the matter with you? And he goes, ah, it's just, just a cold, not a big deal. And they all flip out. And they're like, and he's like, well, what's the big deal? It's just a cold. It's like, dude, Fry, we haven't had a cold in like 2000 years. No <laughs> one has the tolerance for it. And so like the, you know, the, everyone found out that Fry had this, had a cold. So they quarantined where they were. Uh, they're, they're like little shop place. They put like this big bubble around it. And then Bender somehow like got out. He just walked out and he had, uh, you know, he had, the, it was funny. He's, he had just like gotten sneezed on by Fry or something. And so he goes to all the, the police protecting the quarantine zone and like putting his hands on their faces, being like, you're such a, doing such a good job and patting him on the head and wiping his hands all over him. And so basically all of the New York was infected. New, wasn't it New, and, New York? Yeah, New New York. And so they quarantined New New York. And then they decided the only thing that we can do is we have to basically vaporize it. So they like somehow, you know, they got a spaceship and they shot the laser at it and picked up the city and they're going to just throw it into the sun. And I'm watching this episode and I'm thinking they are going out of their way to come up with the most comical, most absurd ways to deal with a deadly virus that is going to kill everyone and it still makes more sense than what we're doing right now. It, that's the thing, dude, at first. So I, I tweeted this. I, I don't remember exactly when it was. People could go look it up if they wanted to. But I, I remember tweeting and comparing COVID-19 and the government responses. Because um, you guys remember how mismanaged uh, some of the health practices were at like the, um, the retirement homes in New York City. Oh, yeah. where They were basically sending huge amounts of these people to their deathbeds. Uh, with the way that they were handling it. And I remember comparing it to Animal Farm, where I was, where I said, you know, you remember Boxer, right? He, he got to the end of his working years and then they 
they sort of killed him off, right? I mean, like he got to, he, he hurt his leg and it was supposed to be his time to go to the retirement pasture and they sent him to the glue factory. And I can remember making that comparison in my head at the time and thinking that that was really smart. Um, but it, it seems like what really came of this, rather than killing off the, the retired population, which we really didn't do, if we're being honest, right? If we're being honest about the data, uh, we moved right. the Overton window on monetary policy, right? Because suddenly it became not just about what we had to do um, to save the elderly, to save the sick, right? It, it became what we had to do to save the economy, right? I, a year and a half ago, print the Fed printing printing four trillion dollars. I mean, it, it would have been crazy. It would have sent off. It would not have worked. There's no way, especially like that, just wouldn't have happened. That, you can't even. There was no chance of that ever happening without this. Exactly, it moved None. the Overton window, where to where rather than it being about we have to save the economy because of you know this this financial crisis because we, that's just what we have to that's just what the fed does now right they buy toxic assets they print money um they expand credit that's just what the fed does it's what they did in 2008 it's what they have to do now no now the overton window was this is what we must do to save our economy because of this disease because of this epidemic how many uh, i think that's that's absolutely on point and how many republicans conservatives whatever um a year ago if you brought up the idea of universal universal basic income or the federal government writing you a check yeah even would, one would, stimulus yes that the, their heads would explode and now they're all screaming for it yeah no we say, have I'm, like a I'm shutdown in they, yeah i'm surprised they haven't actually like continued that well, they want to, but it's been turned into a, a bipartisan issue. Right. Right. It's like, oh, no, not till after the election. Or not until yeah. we get our slush funds. Yeah. Well, every, everyone agrees that, yeah, yeah, we're going to, we're going to write these checks and provide this, uh, you know, this welfare to everyone. We're just, we're just arguing over the rest of the pork barrel spending in the bill. The other thing is, like, the reality $1,200 doesn't really help anybody when, nobody's working no like, yeah no it's, it pays your banks your debt your whatever your bills your mortgages it's either month. extra spending for the people who don't need it or it's not enough for the people who do right well it's like yeah i i i forget i can't speak specifically to it but i remember that the, a lot of the people that got that stimulus check it didn't they weren't using it for actually you know paying debt down and stuff but remember the cash for clunkers thing where it was, uh, it was under Obama, and yeah, if you had a used car, yeah. yeah, your used car, and then you would, uh, they would basically destroy the car, make it unusable, and and trash it, and then they would give you money, you know, to go out and buy a new car because they wanted they wanted cleaner cars to be on the road. Well, most people, there a lot more people went and bought like pickup trucks and SUVs with that with that stimulus money they got. Yeah, wasn't it? So some- it just deal like no questions asked here's a check like you could have brought in like a an old truck from 1972 that barely runs and they're like four thousand dollars that's one of the most keynesian things i've ever heard yeah and and it just destroyed the secondary markets for used cars too so now you know it just hurt 
hurt people that were relying on those yeah, on those cheap like, used cars. The, the like clunkers that the cars. Yeah, they, they ran. They, them. they ran the engines without oil until they seized up, and that you know effectively made the car absolutely worthless. So you know there were some people that are on the edge, and hey, you know two hundred bucks, two hundred fifty bucks to drive a junker. It might break down here and there, and it's gonna, you know, be a real nasty drive, and it'll get you your three miles sound. to work or whatever. Yeah. yeah, but but that makes a difference between being able to drive to work and not being able to get to work. So now being on welfare <laughs> versus being self sufficient. Yeah, so it just it just chops the legs out from under people that were barely standing up to begin with. I think we should we should shift a little bit because we haven't touched on this at all. Now I've had a lot of people ask me. Uh, if the riots were related at all to my pontifications on monetary policy and, and inequality and those types of things, what what do you guys think, right? Because it just so happened that right around the same time that all this was happening and, and the economy was shutting down and we we're having the worst, you know, just absolute tanking inequities and, and unemployment and, uh, pretty much as as bad as everything could get it was getting bad right around that same time the majority of american urban centers are are breaking down into not rioting but outright like looting and pillaging like straight up anarchy not anarchy in the way that we like to talk about it but like literal lawlessness um what, what do you guys do you guys think that that's related i don't know i think there's some relation to it i think that I mean, you, you pen people up in their houses and make them not be able to interact with others very well and not be able to be very productive. I know for me, if this happened in the dead of winter and the weather was such that I couldn't get outside, like I spent a lot of time doing yard work um, during the lockdowns when there was really no place for me to go. I was working from home and everything, but I was telling people, man, if I couldn't get out and do that stuff, I probably would have burnt my house down. I would have, I would have like kind of lost my mind. Well, mental illness and suicide was on the rise, right? I mean, it's still on the yeah. rise as far as I know. Yeah. And then you have people that you say, you, you know, people can't work. And oh, what, what are you going to do instead of going outside and getting fresh air and, and exercising and everything? No, sit home, watch TV and have junk food delivered to you. Um, so, I yeah, I think in that sense, it, it caused people to just like go nuts a little bit. And then on top of that, and this ties back a little bit into what we were talking about with, you know, the power of China being able to e- manipulate the reaction of the U.S. government with this stuff. I, I don't think people give uh, international propaganda wars enough credit. Like there's the whole Russia stuff, influence of Russia. And no, I don't think that there's necessarily politicians that are like taking calls from Putin and everything. But to think that countries like Russia are not engaging in like propaganda warfare against the United States or China or any other country that has, you know, a reason to not be super friendly with the U.S., I think you're insane. They're absolutely buying ads. They're absolutely writing and, and promoting articles because and, and they're playing all sides and they want to fo- because they know they can't win a hot war against us. They know they can't win an economic war against us. So what are they going to do? They're going to go in and they're going to make they're going to spread pop propaganda on the inside and get people all worked about 
up about stuff and they're doing it both. I'm, I was, uh, this idea came in cause I was talking to a coworker about it and he, he explained his like reasoning for why this is all happening. He goes, you were probably propagandized too with all the libertarian Ron Paul stuff. And he's like, it's not that it's not necessarily that they're just like giving you, it's not that the propaganda is bad information necessarily. They don't care if it's true or, or not true, right or wrong. They just want to get you to hunker down into uh, like an ideology and something. So, you know, the right wing stuff or the libertarian stuff, whatever you want to call it, a lot of that is probably influenced by foreign countries just trying to get people to go deeper into their corners. And likewise, they're absolutely doing it on the other side, too. That's like I because I, I, I don't see how this crazy leftist stuff, because no one actually thinks this stuff, could becoming this popular without some other in, you know, outside influence kind of pushing that. So I think that that kind of BLM um, and and whatever, whatever this this craziness is, I think that's getting pushed by uh, by some sort of outside force kind of reinforcing that and really, really pumping those uh, pumping that balloon a lot, a lot uh, bigger with air. I, th- I think it was Yuri Bezmenov, the KGB defector, who mm-hmm. said that you can't control what people think, but you can control what they think about. Yes. The, other, the other day, uh, I was listening to one of the one of the podcasts that Swan Bitcoin does, and they had uh, Max Kaiser on, and he was talking about how the current economic struggle in the United States is not well, not even economic. The current socio political and socioeconomic struggle in the United States is not external. It's internal. You know, China is not the greatest threat to the United States uh, social order or the United States uh, economic order or the United States social order. It's internal struggle. Um, It's the wealth inequality, right? And and like, I I feel like to a certain point, like people like me and and maybe people like you, Rollo, and and I don't know about you, Slappy, uh, maybe we're a little bit muted to the the devastation of like you know like not even at this point you know i i say millennial um but i'm i'm almost 30 you know like and and i'm getting to the point in the world where like i have enough wealth accumulated that i'm not going to go broke tomorrow right but like i'm I'm thinking about these these gen z you know they're just getting out of college and there's no job prospects how do you accumulate wealth in a world where assets are so inflated and so overvalued thanks to 50, 60 years of central bank policy. And and these people can't get in on the Ponzi to benefit from asset inflation. And they're, they're, they're broke and they're hopeless and they're nihilistic. And their best chance is like, you know, trading um, leveraged futures, like buying puts on the S&P or whatever, or that are buying like scratch off tickets in order to like get ahead in life. Um, you know, and, and I agree with Max Kaiser when he basically equates that to an internal struggle in the United States due to wealth inequality created by central banking. Um, and, and I absolutely think it's possible, right, that that a lot of the anger um, that you're seeing in these protests are people who really just don't understand what's going on. They're angry. They don't really know why they're angry or who they're angry at, but they're being told that it's white supremacy and racism. So they're like, okay, yeah, I'm on board. Let's, let's put an end to this injustice, right? Let's, 
make it so that I can have what my parents had or what their grandparents had. Um, and that I can, you know, start a family with a single income household and, and buy a house and live happily ever after. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I agree. Um, you look at, you look at anything out, you know, just to give a kind of a wild, crazy, uh, comparison to it, but you look at something like, uh, ISIS in the middle East and you've got these guys that, you know, their, their homes are blown up and they've got nothing. They've got no prospects and they're kind of up. They understand something's not right. And you got these, Hey, you here's something to believe in. Here's something to get you wound up and, and all, you know, fervently involved in. And so you start going out and doing crazy stuff. And I think it's the same thing going on here where, um, you know, obviously they're not going out and being, uh, you know, chopping heads off at least <laughs> not yet. Although there's a lot of people saying they want to do that here, which is crazy, but you know, it's the same kind of thing. I agree. You, you, there's no prospects for these people. They, they understand that the world they're in, that they've got no real shot. They got no opportunity. Um, the job, the, the ability for them to get a job is just horrific. And if they do, it's not going to really pay anything. And they live in, in, you know, not, great places and they have no opportunities to start anything on their own. So yeah, they're going to be pissed off. They're going to be angry. And then, you know, someone plants a little bug in their ear about, uh, it's this person is causing you these problems and it's these people and this corporation. And, you know, here's the way you can, you can, you know, get, get a little bit back is to, is to fight back and, you know, pick up this brick and throw it through that glass. It's, it's taken opportunities of, you know, people get pissed off, people are, are hungry, and they start doing crazy wild things. Well, can we just clarify for a moment that these problems, maybe not in their complete entirety, but the vast majority of these problems stem from government policy, right? I mean, like, oh, absolutely. most of these kids that are coming out of college with $100,000 of student loan debt and, and no ability to start a family no ability to accumulate assets and, and thereby accumulate wealth, minimum wage job prospects. They were sold a lie, right, by uh, crony business practices, uh, which I attribute to the university system, and, and told, you know, like, yeah, it's fine, major in communications or major in art history or feminist literature or whatever. And and yeah, you'll, you'll find your way uh, once you get out of the uh, university system. Just give us a hundred thousand dollars now, and yeah, we'll help you network on the other end, and uh, maybe you'll you'll get a job as like a uh, I don't know, like a feminist basket weaver or whatever. But <laughs> the reality is that these are flawed, failed, disrupted business models being propped up by government subsidy. And how quickly the free market disrupts these things, you know, you go go look at like Lambda School. Right, which is teaching people how to program in like nine months, turning them into like intermediate level programmers who are hireable on like a full time salary and and not charging them anything up front and then making them pay back a percentage of their income after they're hired post graduation from their school. Right. They're totally disrupting the four year university model, which is charging you like six figures to get a useless degree and nothing with no job prospects. It's like students 
you know, in the traditional system, it's like you're issuing bonds, you're, you're, you're issuing debt, whereas this is like an equity. Yeah. And you, and you said something that, you know, no prospects for a family. I think it's a real important one because when you're a kid and you're 18, 17, 18 years old, you're not necessarily thinking about, you know, parenthood and, and raising a family. You don't know what you're doing. So when your guidance counselor at school is telling you, oh yeah, go get a, not, not just get a four-year college degree, but, or four-year, you know, bachelor's degree, but go and go to graduate school and spend a lot of time doing that. Go do all this stuff. And, and especially it's really awful for women, um, who get sold the bill of goods. The most fulfilling thing that you can do in your life is to get some advanced degree that you have to be in school until you're 29, 30, 31 years old. And then you need to get your foot in the door to business. So once you're like 38 or something, then you can start thinking about settling down and having a family. But guess what? That ship's probably sailed on you. And so you just like, but, but biology is not going to stop. And so, you know, you're going to be miserable because you're going to have a big part of your life that you didn't fulfill by becoming a parent and settling down and or settling down, having a family and being a parent. Um, and, and that's like that cronyism with colleges and everything. And, and, and even in high schools and everything, selling these kids a bill of goods about you have to go to college. I think they recognized that, you know, and this whole thing with getting women in STEM, um, it's just a scam because they don't care about women, uh, promoting women in the workplace or, or, or having, you know, equal opportunities or that. This just, they realized they could double the amount of people they could stuff into their universities and double the amount of, uh, tuition getting paid to them. So they're, they're promoting this, this ridiculous idea that, you know, you're not fulfilled unless you have this advanced career or something and that, Oh, you just want to be, you want to be a homemaker. You want to be a mother. Oh no, you're not. That's not what womanhood is. That's not good. That's and you know, that, that's what? That's not sexy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, uh, you know, it goes without saying, obviously there can be women in STEM or doing it, but like you, you don't need to like force it like this. And, and, and fortunately I do think there's been kind of a pushback. I think young people are starting to realize that and you're, you're starting to see even young women saying like, you know what? I actually think I just want to be a mother. I want to find a good man and settle down and be a husband. And that's great. I mean, you know, we can, we can trace a lot of the, the problems of society with not having a strong family. I was going to say structure, not, not to actually you, but I wouldn't even say just be a mother. I would say, I want to be a mother. Like that's a, that's not a, right. Job. Yeah. That's a real calling and a real, yeah, I, 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 I know what you meant, but yeah, just only be a mother. Career. Like, I don't want to say, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I meant. Yeah. No big deal. That's a, that's yeah, a yeah, yeah, job. Yeah. That's a big thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's probably the most important job that exists. No, and so if we want to produce families and, and people <laughs> that like care about the future and, and raise good kids, like, you know, I don't want to generalize women by any means. You know, I can only speak to the women that I've known and, and particularly my wife, who I know better than any other woman. And like she wants nothing more than for us to get to a point in life where like she can not have to work ever again and spend all of her time at home, like raising our kids and, and making the home, 
you know, the place that she wants it to be. Like that's her goal. Like that's her dream in life is to get to the point where she never has to work another day and can just focus on being like a stay at home mother and like bearing and raising children. Cause like that, that's what the biological imperative of women is like without generalizing. Right. I mean, there's, sure. there's women that don't want that and that's fine. Uh, but generally speaking, like particularly most young women, that's what their biological drives are. Yeah. My dad worked really hard uh, to be able to afford it so that my mom didn't have to go to work and she could stay home and raise the kids. And and if you, if you ask my mom, like, Hey, was that a good decision to do? Like she would say, absolutely. Like that's t- the idea that, that she shouldn't have stayed home to be a full-time mother and raise the kids and not, not push that off to anybody else would just be so insulting to her. It's like, and, and I would think that most mothers would feel the same way. I, I, I don't, I, it's, I think if you would ask most people, would you like to not have to worry about money and stay home and raise your kids? I would think most people would say, yes, I would rather do that than have to go to work and send my kids to preschool or uh, to daycare or something. And there's, and, and I feel, we talked about this, I think a few episodes ago, Slappy. I don't begrudge people that have to send their kids to daycare. I mean, we're, we live in a, in a world with the federal reserve and the fiat money system that is so awful that it is an imperative for a lot of people, a lot of families to have to live on the dual income. Um, but that's, that's part of this nasty feedback loop and nasty cycle that we got to break out of somehow. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of women like, you know, again, I don't want to generalize, but I, I think a lot of them are, are not as fulfilled uh, as they would be had they started families earlier. Like I wish that I hadn't been talked out of uh, serious relationships at a young age, right? Like, I mean, I wish I had spent less time sort of screwing around uh, and, and more time focused on something bigger than myself, meaning like a family, a wife, children, uh, career aspirations beyond just me getting wealthy for my own sake. Um, maybe, maybe there's some merit there, but in terms of the longevity of a society, like you want people focused on the future, on future generations, not turned inwards in and upon themselves, not so nihilistic that they don't necessarily care uh, what happens to them tomorrow, right? And, and I mean, I, again, I think uh, a lot of women uh, ha- have feel this internally, uh, but feel afraid to express it because they're ostracized by society. They're told that if they want to feel successful, if they want to be successful, if they want to be respected, if they want to be able to compete with men, well, then they have to have a career. They have to delay starting a family. Like, yeah, don't waste your best years on, on a man, on a family, on children, waste, you know, spend your best years, um, trying to be competitive in a career that probably won't pan out thanks to your uh, Ponzi scheme for your university education. Yeah. And make yourself uh, less desirable for as a wife, because you're coming with a quarter million dollars in debt from your, you know, 10 years of, of going to college. 
it's just yeah it's it's absurd it's insane again we're not trying to generalize um all women but it's uh, just just look up look up the uh the happiness um demographic they they publish like uh your happiness levels take a look take a look at who is the demographic that scores the lowest on happiness it might be women who are single without kids or unmarried women with no kids in their like mid-career and that should that should say something because they're probably making good money <laughs> if the, you know if they're per- yeah i think they're professional women so all that is said, what the demographic is so all that said is it any surprise that we have people you know burning down metropolitan areas and smashing in windows and um stampeding to the fall of capitalism and saying oh we need a change like we need a revolution we need something new because capitalism is broken right that's something that ben and i have to uh, ben and i from wtf 1971 have to contend with all the time is people telling us that capitalism failed uh which you know anybody who's dug into that narrative any beyond the surface level understands that that isn't true just because of the fact that we haven't had real capitalism in like 50 years, maybe even longer than that. But, um, that, that the only good things we have in society are because of free markets, because of private property, because of the ability to choose, you know, what and when and where and how you do with your time and labor and retain the fruits of that labor. Uh, people want to overthrow that and and return to something akin to the dark ages where, um, you know, the, the church has become the state and the state wants to tell you exactly how do you live your life, exactly when you can go out of your house and exactly how you can do it and where you can go and how you have to act and what you have to wear. Um, and I think there's a lot of disturbing similarities between like the dark ages with the church and the way it controlled society and, and the state today. Yeah, it's, um, it certainly just feels weird with the amount of just everyone. It's so permissioned, uh, with the state nowadays and, and COVID really just kind of amplifies that. The fact that, oh, because some government bureaucrat made a ruling that you have to wear a mask or that the virus spreads this way and, and, and not that way. And then they and then they change the science, <laughs> quote, change the science and say, actually, that's that's not how the virus transmits. But still, no one like changes how they act. And it, it's just, yeah, but it's because we have to, because that's the like it's. Ugh. I just think it's bizarre that everyone's immediate reaction is to turn to government for help, um, whether you're Republican or Democrat. Or maybe you'll say, you know, the market should decide, should decide, but they have no, there's no good promoters of it. They don't know how to market it or explain it. They just kind of react. Um, I mean, I've seen campaign ads blaming Trump, like we talked about earlier, because like, Trump is responsible for deaths from a virus. 
Like that doesn't even make sense. Even if he did a terrible job, how is a president responsible for deaths from a virus? And, and meanwhile, meanwhile, state governments were the ones and, and local governments were the ones that were responsible for implementing. Like, I don't know what they actually wanted. The yeah, well, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just it's mind numbingly dumb. Yeah, it's incredibly stupid. But um, we should probably wrap it up unless you have anything to add. Now, Colin, do you? Nope, I don't think so. Okay. Um, does anyone have a free market success story? We didn't discuss this. We did not discuss you're... this. Do you have one? Uh, no, I don't. There's, the market doesn't exist anymore. No, there is uh, no market. Yeah, the market's kind of <laughs> fucked. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe, maybe I can talk about how, uh, I got to work on my tractor. So there's people that put out free information on how to do some repair work. So I'm going to be leveraging that. Don't have to pay for it. Well, I think that is kind of, so like I, I did some repairs on my deck a couple of weeks ago and I've never done that before, but there's all kinds of websites with free information on how to do it. And then I could pick up the lumber in my neighborhood, essentially, uh, at a store that had everything I needed, which was nice. Um, we'll call that a free market success. There we go. Yeah, real quick, I could mention something I think is extremely disruptive, and that's 3D printing. Um, <laughs> my dad owns an RV, and because him and my mom are semi-retired and travel all over the country, and uh, he had this problem where all of his drawers and cupboards and stuff were coming undone uh, every time they'd hit the road you know, flying open and stuff going all over the place. So he, you know, took a couple hours and taught himself CAD and learned how to create 3D models uh, and, and designed a latch for all of his um, drawers and cupboards awesome. and stuff like that and had me 3D print it with my 3D printer and I sliced it up with my software and we were able to like solve that problem for him for like a couple dollars worth of materials and electricity, which is just insane. Cause the, had he just, had he already found somebody who solved that problem, it would have cost him like, you know, a couple hundred dollars to buy all the latches and, and, and install them and everything like that. But like to be able to solve that problem for, you know, a few pennies worth of plastic and electricity um, through his own intuition is, is pretty phenomenal. I think 3D printing is going to change the world, like completely disrupt manufacturing globally. That's awesome. And that's great because that's what we talked about in our, <laughs> the, the episode, episode before this. Okay. We had, uh, we had, you know, Max Sikorsky from Eden Printing? No, I don't think I do. He's, uh, he's kind of, he's a, he's a big, he's a good Bitcoiner and he's, uh, building a, 3D printer that's uh, kind of the all the all in one thing, including running a full node. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, it's I also agree that 3D printing is just one of those one of those stepping stones. It's just gonna really give people the average person a whole lot of leverage that will really be disruptive for society. So if you're in, if you haven't listened to the listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode we had last week, just uh, jump back to episode two nineteen. And, and check that out because it's uh it got me excited about the future yeah you know what it reminds me of is like the birth of the machining lathe um in like the 18th century mm -hmm. 
just totally changed the entire game and, and kicked off the industrial revolution. We are on the brink of like this massively deflationary technological decentralized revolution that just empowers individuals above all else, like between Bitcoin, you know, sovereign money, sovereign banking and, and 3d printing, which is sovereign manufacturing. Like it's, it's going to totally change the world really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's gradually then suddenly, I think this stuff is going to all of a sudden just explode with 3d printing and it's going to become, you know, right now there's a little bit of a barrier because it takes a little bit of time to uh and some technical skill uh to be able to, to do it but i think it's just going to be like just another box in your house another appliance that you know any idiot can go buy it at the store order online bring it home plug it in and you know you spend a few minutes looking at the instruction manual if you need that and you're on your way with printing stuff yeah and that's a- Amazon so exciting print stuff for you instead of mailing it to you yeah yeah yeah, it's uh, man, man, the cost savings and the efficiency gains in there, you know, soup to nuts is just it, it's it's so exciting. So, Colin, why don't you tell people uh, where they can find you, what you're working on? You got you got your hands in a few different uh, baskets. Yeah, I mean, the best place to find me is on Twitter at heavilyarmc. That's the letter C. Um, that's probably where I'm most active. I recently I've been writing a lot for our newsletter for WTF happened in 1971. Uh, the archives for that is at, uh, WTF 1971, just not, not WTF happened in 1971, just WTF 1971. Uh, recently I, I haven't had as much bandwidth to write on that as much, but like I, I'm hoping to write a book in the future, which sort of summarizes all of our, uh, findings with WTF 1971 because it's led to a lot of like really good insights around the way people think about money and and some of their misconceptions. Um, So yeah, if you want to find out more about like what I think about a lot of things, that's a good place to find out more. But otherwise, Twitter is the best place to find me. Yeah. And you've also got your, uh, the podcast Bitcoin Echo Chamber, which is uh, always an excellent listen. Oh, thank you. All right. It's kind of like a bear market thing. I imagine it's going to go into a hibernation mode here soon. Yeah. Uh, but definitely, I mean, a lot of evergreen stuff on that. So if you're interested in, and cause I know a lot of our listeners are kind of Bitcoin curious, but, uh, that's definitely one that, I mean, you just heard Colin talk, so, you know, he's on our side with all the, <laughs> the Liberty stuff. So if you want kind of the, you know, Bitcoin flavor of that, that's uh, a great listen. Um, I had something else I want to say. Oh, yeah, yeah. That we, we definitely have to have you on again because I want you and Ben on to talk about uh, WTF happened in 1971.com because, uh, man, that is that is quite a pill to give a lot of unsuspecting people. <laughs> yeah, we uh, would- That's a great site that I've shared with a lot of people. Yeah, Ben, ben and I have uh, sort of like gotten a, like a routine down where, where we can like talk through that in like 60 or 90 minutes. So we're down anytime. Dude, we should awesome. have you on again to, uh, to do that for sure. Totally. All right. Well, Colin, once again, thanks for coming on. This was, uh, this was an excellent conversation. I got a lot out of it and I know the, uh, the listeners will. So everyone, uh, check out all that stuff. Colin just mentioned will be on the uh, show notes page, mcflugel.com slash two, two, zero. And, uh, yeah, share this out. Um, 
That's it. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next week. Peace.